Okay. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Great to see so many people at this event. Do, do please squeeze up to make, make room for latecomers. So, um, I'm Ian Black. I'm a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Center here at LSE. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the, the, what we're going to do this evening. So, Sam Dara will speak for about 20, 30 minutes, maybe leaving uh, time for questions from uh, you, the audience. Please do turn off your phones or silence, silence them uh, because the talk is being recorded. Um, so Sam Dagger has reported uh, on the Middle East for more than 12 years, for so more than 15 years. He was the only um, Western media outlet reporter based full-time in Damascus from 2012 to 2014 until he was detained by the Assad regime and expelled for reporting that was deemed unfavorable to the regime. He's worked for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and Agence France Presse, and has covered the conflict in Iraq, the uprisings of the Arab Spring and Libya, and the Wall Street Journal uh, submitted his work from Syria for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, so if you want to tweet in the modern way, just uh, like the guy in the Oval Office about this event, the hashtag is LSE Syria. Uh, Sam's book is being uh, sold outside the lecture theater here. And um, Sam, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you. Thank you, everyone, for making the time. Uh, and uh, I mean, I wanted to start off um, by talking about the uh, the title of the book. So um, it's Assad or We Burn the Country. It's not uh, something I came up with. It is uh, the, the regime's own uh, slogan. And uh, and I saw it on the walls of uh, you know the, the towns and the cities and the neighborhoods that had risen up against the regime and then were subdued and taken over. So what would uh, typically happen is, you know, the regime would um, besiege an area um, and uh, bombard it day and night until it, until it reverted back uh, to its control. And then um, the regime's uh, soldiers and, and, and militiamen would go in um, on this rampage of, of looting you know, whatever homes uh, remained uh, standing, because, you know, by then most people were either killed or had to flee, and whatever uh, rebels were there, you know, also either dead or or or, or escaped. So, so these um, soldiers and militiamen would go in and uh, loot everything in in these homes, um, down to the actual copper wires in the walls. And then they would uh, burn a lot of these places because they typically don't want they, they didn't want people uh, to return um, you know to their homes people who had uh, uh, defied the regime and risen up against the regime and this is in in Homs uh, in central Homs in an area called Hamidi and you could see the slogan there 
it says, uh, so what, what they would do is after they would loot these, uh, these apartment buildings and then set them on fire, they would spray this, uh, this graffiti on the walls. And it says, uh, uh, long live Assad's Assyria. So the country belongs to, to the Assad, basically. And then it says, Assad, or we burn the country. That's like the second line. So I kept seeing this in, in, in town after town, neighborhood after neighborhood. And um, it, it's not only arson graffiti. I think it's, in a, in a way, it, uh, it's the mo motto of this, of this family that has ruled Syria now for almost 50 years. I mean, they've, they've outlasted uh, eight U.S. presidents since uh, Richard Nixon. I don't know how many UK prime ministers, but we can, we can calculate that. <laughs> but uh, so it, it, it's their motto and it's the way it, uh, I mean, this slogan, uh, Assad or we burn the country, uh, also distills um, the manner in which this family has um, dealt with its own people and also with the outside world. Uh, whenever it, it felt threatened or uh, it was challenged. So uh, this happened under the father, Hafez, who uh, took over uh, you know, in, 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 in a coup in 1970, uh, at the end of 1970. And uh, it also happened with the son, Bashar, who inherited power in 2000 from his dad when his dad passed away. So under the father, um, there was a very serious challenge to the regime in the mid-70s. I mean, it was almost like five years into his, five or six years into his rule. I mean, in the beginning, um, a lot of the merchants in the, in the cities and a lot of the average Syrians um, held some high hopes for, you know, for Hafez al-Assad. They felt, you know, finally they would have stability after years of uh, coups and, 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 ca and counter-coups. And also, you know, the, there were those uh, years after the Ba'ath Party had taken over power in, in Syria, uh, and they would try to sort of imp implement a very severe, um, you know, uh, command-style uh, economy almost... Uh, at some point, it was um, influenced by, uh, uh, you know, the ideas of Mao and Trotsky. So when Hafez came to power, uh, the Syrians were hopeful that maybe he would implement policies that would be, um, that would allow them to uh, uh, deal with the outside world again, because by them they'd, they'd been sort of ostracized by, by pretty much all their neighbors. And, uh, but then they realized that really all he wanted to do was consolidate power and build this cultish dictatorship. And then uh, the economy was starting to do very badly and uh, corruption uh, was starting to become rampant. I mean, the people who are around um, the president, his, his family members, uh, the heads of the intelligence services, the party apparatchiks. And then uh, people started uh, protesting initially, um, you know, for... Um, uh, higher wages for, uh, you know, there were, there were sort of economic demands. And uh, then it became also political because by then he um, renewed his, um, his rule uh, in a referendum uh, in which he supposedly won by 99.9% or something like that. So people were very angry that, 
you know, all the power is being consolidated in the hands of, 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 of this person and, and the Ba'ath Party. So people started protesting, universities uh, and uh, uh, a, a lot of the um, professional associations and, 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 and labor unions. And what he did is he went after these people first, the peaceful protesters, just like his son would do you know, decades later. And at the same time, there was an, Isl um, an Islamist insurgency uh, led by, um, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the military wing of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, a group called the Talia al-Muqatila. So he basically used uh, this excuse of waging a, a war against terrorism to, uh, to go after anybody who dared challenge his rule. And it culminated in a, in a horrific massacre in Hama in 1982. So this was the way the dad dealt with his own people. And also the dad uh, would, would uh, use terrorism himself as, um, as, a, as a weapon uh, to, uh, to, uh, to sort of uh, extort or blackmail, blackmail um, the outside world whenever he felt his his uh, agenda was was threatened particularly in Lebanon he had gone in in 76 and then he felt uh, then the Western countries were turning against him and then he was using then ter terrorism as a bargaining chip basically helping a lot of these uh, terrorist groups and then going to the West and saying well now uh, I can help you uh, take care of this problem if you stop uh, doing this or that to my regime or you, you stop uh, sanctions on my regime. So this is how the dad uh, used it, you know, in, 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 in dealing with uh, the outside world. And then the son, you know, when he came to power in 2000, um, again used it uh, whenever he felt his regime um, and his power was threatened. He used it in, in Iraq. Um, he felt uh, after the invasion, uh, the, the U.S.-led invasion uh, of Iraq and the toppling of Saddam Hussein, that might, he might be next. So what did he do? He started uh, supporting the insurgency in Iraq in, in all its shades. Uh, the jihadis were coming into Damascus, were flying into Damascus, and were being driven by his, taken by his uh, uh, sec security services to the border and told to cross the border and fight the Americans. So he felt that if the Americans were bogged, the Americans and their allies were bogged in Iraq, they wouldn't come after him. And then uh, later on, you know, just before the Obama, uh, before uh, the election of, of, of Obama, uh, pretty much the, 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 the Democrats uh, uh, reached a deal with him. They said, we will do nothing to threaten your power. Uh, but please stop uh, supporting the insurgency. And uh, that happened starting in 2007. Uh, there was a high-profile visit by Nancy Pelosi at the time, also Speaker of the House, and then uh, John Kerry, who was the personal envoy of, 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 of President Obama. He was the uh, chairman of the, foreign, uh, relation, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And also in Lebanon, I mean, when, when they drove him out of Lebanon in uh, 2005, after the assassination of Hariri, um, he did everything to try to regain leverage in Lebanon, and uh, people accused him of being involved in a campaign of assassinations and, and bombings. And, and in the same manner, uh, a deal was reached in 2008, uh, in which he was, uh, you know, a, 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 a key uh, 
participant. In, in, it was brokered in Doha. So this is how the regime has dealt with the outside world whenever it felt threatened. And then in 2011, when uh, uh, people rose up against the regime, um, uh, from day one, um, the regime wanted to uh, kill people on the street to uh, demonstrate the high price of, uh, of, of defiance. And uh, I'm not saying the regime alone is responsible for the destruction of Syria, but uh, the Assad, you know, Bashar al-Assad and the Assad family uh, bears you know, the brunt of the responsibility because of their actions. Day after day, they've killed people on the streets, peaceful protesters who've tried to simply occupy squares in Damascus or Homs and other cities. Every attempt by people to occupy a square in Damascus was met with uh, unspeakable violence. There was one incident in, in, in April where people tried to converge on a on uh, the Abbasine Square, maybe Ian, you know it, it's on the eastern side of uh, Damascus, and the regime had posted uh, s um, snipers on uh, on this on top of this uh, tower overlooking the the square and just basically mowed down people. And I think the video still may be available on on, on YouTube, so you could see how you know the killing simply uh, fueled this uh, uh, militarization and and was basically. Uh, an invitation to outside powers to participate, whether countries like uh, Qatar and Turkey and Saudi Arabia arming and 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 funding the um, uh, you know the, the the rebels, and basically telling a lot of the peaceful activists uh, that uh, this regime will not fall by peaceful resistance and we, you have to bear arms, or by inviting Iran in to uh, defend and prop up the regime. And also by 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 making specific um, uh, taking specific actions at the beginning of the uprising, for instance, releasing a lot of the militants from prison uh, as a way of poisoning the, this uprising from the very beginning, and uh, all of it to basically bring us to to a point where the world is faced with um, two choices: either um, him or ISIS, and. Uh, Obviously, the world chose him as uh, the lesser of two evils. And uh, again, uh, it was either him or refugees. And again, the world said we'd rather have him there as the lesser of two evils. I, I know now, uh, you know, in the news, people talk that, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Iran and, uh, and Russia, um, or mainly Russia, um, is is basically protecting him. Yes, I mean that's true, but also I mean the the West, uh, Britain and Europe and the U.S. have made a conscious decision that they'd rather have him rather than the alternative. But I don't think it's a viable long-term solution because I mean we're seeing it uh, uh, we're seeing it play out in in other countries as well because sooner or later people are going to rise up again in Syria as they are rising up again in other countries. Um, we can't, I mean, we can't just wash our hands of it and say, let, let Russia deal with it, let other countries deal with it. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in Libya. For instance, we, we said let, let the regional players who have a stake in Libya deal with Libya, but now we're having to inter intervene uh, in, to try to stop what's happening in Libya because, you know, we had left it alone. Um, we're, 
we're seeing Iraq. I mean, we thought that everything was done when ISIS was defeated, and that's it, and we declared victory over ISIS. But people are back on the streets saying, you know, we want better governance. We want to basically reclaim our future. So these are, these are, these are the things that the Iraqis are, are asking for that have nothing to do with ISIS. So uh, I think it, it's just a reminder that these bargains could work, maybe short term, but, but long term, you know, the, the consequences are, are pretty grave. And also I would leave you with this one thought. Uh, you, you know, think about it. Uh, He's pretty much gotten away with, with the murder so far. Um, every att attempt to hold him accountable for his war crimes have failed. Um, I mean, think about the, the chilling message it sends to other tyrants and other dictators around the world. It's basically telling them it's okay to, to do this kind of stuff uh, if you want to remain in power. Um, and with this thought, I will just tell you briefly, I mean, do I have some? Sure. Um, maybe sure. just um, about the book itself, how I've structured it, and then we can open it up to questions. So basically, I've uh, tried to focus on four main uh, uh, characters, so to speak. The uh, Manaf Tlaus, who is a childhood friend of Bashar al-Assad, and through him, um, I'm able to tell you the story of the regime from the inside, uh, how this the, the Tlaas family is basically a partner with the Assad family in the construction of this regime from the onset. The fathers were friends at the military academy in, in their uh, in their early 20s, and they basically rose up to power together and crushed every challenge to, that, uh, that the regime confronted. And then uh, the son had you know, reached a point in 2011 where he had to uh, to decide whether he wanted to be like his father, uh, follow the footsteps of his own father uh, uh, by you know, uh, doing everything to defend the regime, even killing people or, or acquiescing to killing. So, um, so he was the vehicle through which I was able to tell you know, the story of what was happening inside the regime, particularly in the first, uh, you know, the, it, it's not only the history, but also uh, the first few weeks and months of the uprising, which I think are crucial, and um, I don't think um, we foc we have uh, focused um, on, on this period as much as, as as it merits in terms of you know what was happening in the first few weeks and months, and and how the regime really took the decision to kill people day in and day out. And then uh, the other characters are uh, a lawyer, a human rights lawyer called Mazen Darwish. Uh, he, like many others, were all dreaming of, uh, of freedom, of uh, political plurality for a long time, and trying in their own ways, you know, under, uh, Syrians use a lot this phrase, uh, you know, under the umbrella of the regime, to, to have some change, to have some uh, margin of freedom of, of, of maneuvering, but even those small attempts were always crushed by the regime, and the Arab Spring begins, and uh, Mazen and many others see this as a, an opportunity to basically fulfill their dreams and, and, and to do what their own parents have fa failed to accomplish for a long time. And uh, he's a peaceful resistance. He was against uh, bearing arms to confront the regime, and, and he, you know, as you we'll see in the book he pays a heavy price for that. 
the other character is a painter called Khalid al-Khani. He was seven when uh, uh, his uh, hometown, Hama, was massacred under the, the father, Hafiz. And also you see his journey from you know, his childhood and, and then later as an adult, uh, particularly through that first uh, um, decade of Bashar's uh, rule when Syrians thought that you know, uh, he may open up the country and uh, he may um, you know, be different from his father. And then obviously uh, how Khalid himself uh, uh, deals with the uprising and, and, and how it sort of bring, brings back you know, memories of what happened uh, uh, when he was a child in Hama. And then uh, the other main character is, is Sally. Uh, she's uh, an 18-year-old girl from Dara, the south. That's where uh, the first big protests erupted. I mean, there had been attempts, actually, uh, for, uh, by people in Damascus, particularly, to protest in January and February, but, but, but they never gained momentum. And there was a big protest in Dara, and we see Sally there, uh, joining you know, the protests. And it, it was mainly, I mean, an opportunity for these young people, for young Syrians, she was only 18, uh, to, to find their voices, to find their identity under this system that have always told them how to think and how to view the world. And, uh, and obviously she never, she doesn't remember what happened under the father, under Hafez. And we see her parents telling her, you know, be careful, this regime uh, is not going to go away. It's not like the other Arab countries, like uh, Tunisia, like Egypt. Uh, they're going to fight till the end, and and their parents were right. So with that, I will open it up to questions. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. So um, I'm just going to exploit my privileged position as chairman just to ask a uh, a, a question or two. I mean, I don't know how many of you have yet read Sam's book, but it's a very, very vivid and readable account, and it's also moving, too. And I remember myself being in um, Damascus in January 2012, which was, you know, quite early on, and I was reporting for The Guardian at the time, and I remember being, you know, really moved and excited by what I saw. Uh, I was in Zabadani, for example, which was, the, which was the stronghold then of the, of the Free Syrian Army. And despite having uh, a, a government visa, I was able to, to go there. That changed, of course, as you, as you know very well. But it was very exciting. It was moving, really, to, to see people out on the streets and calling for the overthrow of the regime. But of course, you know, nine years on, eight years on, whatever, with 500,000 people dead, Syrians, something like that. Something like that, yeah. You know, half the population are refugees. Uh, there's a sense of fatigue, isn't there? Absolutely. How was it? How was it? Were people naive? Were Syrians naive? Was the, was the rest of the world blinkered or stupid in its understanding of what was going to happen. I, I just noticed the quote that you, um, that you mentioned. You, you, you talked about how, how Assad, in, important move, I think, released extremist jihadis from prison in order to weaponize the uprising in his own interest. And you, you say, 
and I quote, it was in keeping with a long-established regime tradition of nurturing the beast and then presenting itself to the West as the only one capable of slaying it, but subject to preconditions. Were, were people naive and stupid? To, to, to rise up and confront the regime? In the way that they responded to it. The Syrians themselves, who presumably knew well what the regime was capable of, were the Syrians themselves naive, idealistic perhaps, and what about the rest of the world as well, which is an important part of the story as you lay out very eloquently in your book. Right. Um, I mean, first of all, a, cu a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, in tandem with releasing, I mean, just uh, I, I wanted to just uh, a, a small add-on. In tandem with releasing the, the militants from prison, he also did everything to uh, take the peaceful uh, protesters or the peaceful activists out of the picture very quickly from the beginning. So they either, uh, and it really worked. I mean, what he would do is he would go after them very hard. Mm. He would uh, imprison them, uh, torture them, and in some instances return their car corpses back to their communities where they would be, uh, you know, presented as a, as a, as a cautionary tale uh, to anyone who would think about protesting. And that was very effective because people really, f you know, fled the country or were taken out of the picture very quickly, were, were in prison, were not there. So that really opened the way to those who wanted to bear arms and to, to, to the quick sort of militarization of it, um, you know, a few months into it. But I'll go back to what you said, uh, what you asked about uh, Syrians being naive. Uh, the people, the, the first people sort of the, that broke the fear barrier of the regime, because you have to remember, this is a country, a police state, ruled by this uh, uh, sprawling uh, security apparatus. I mean, we're talking about four main uh, security services with branches in every city, and these security services are watching each other mm. and, 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 uh, and making sure that you know, any hint of criticism of the regime is, is crushed. So uh, the people who, who breached this fear barrier in the beginning were, were not many. I mean, we're just a few people. Uh, but I think uh, what happened is, uh, even in Dara itself, the first day uh, on March 18th, uh, the initial chants were not for the toppling of the regime. There's even a, a, a video, you could go back and, and listen to it and, and watch it, is, uh, a couple of people, when people began to protest, they, 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 they say, uh, you know, the, the people want to topple the regime. And immediately they're drowned out. I mean, people say, no, 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 no. The people want to reform the regime. So in the beginning, it was very cautious, you know, uh, uh, people were very cautious. And it was only a, a minority that sort of broke the fear barrier. But I think what, what happened is just the... the, 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 the the regime's response, uh, the killing from day one, um, the, the, uh, the brutality of the regime day in, day out, really galvanized people. And, and I think at that point, people did not think they were driven by this idea, like, this regime must go because he's killing us, you know, day after day. So I think at that point, maybe they stopped thinking and they, they, and, and, and they were seeing um, 
perhaps you know the the revolutions as they call them succeed in other places you know what happened in uh, in Egypt and what was happening in Libya and other places yeah okay so over to you please so I, I yeah hang on so wait for the mic please and because we need to uh, record everything um, okay um, but keep your questions short, okay? Because uh, so everybody has a fair chance. Uh, thank you for coming very much. Uh, my name is Jad. I'm a third-year IR student at LSE. Uh, I read your book over the summer as well. It was very insightful. Uh, my question is mainly about Manaft loss. Um, so, and you acknowledge this in the book. You say that he was rejected by the people that the opposition because they saw him very much as part of the political establishment. He was there for 10 years before the revolution started. And, and until today, people don't really trust him back home in Syria. And you acknowledge this in the book, but I'm wondering if you confronted him with it, if he had any explanations about that or justifications? Yeah, good question. Um, Do we want to take questions in groups or, or single questions? Do you mind? Do you have a preference? Uh, we can take single questions. Okay, yeah. and, and I'll sort of keep fine, my answers fine. brief okay. so we can uh, cover as much ground as possible. Thank you. Uh, I think uh, when he talks about, because again, you have to remember, these two families, I mean, their histories are intertwined from the very beginning. I mean, the dads were in the military academy together. Um, the, the person who read out the, uh, the, the first communique when... Um, Hafez al-Assad uh, uh, took power uh, through this coup against his own Ba'athist comrades was Manaf's father, Mustafa, because at the time, uh, Gaddafi had flown uh, to Damascus. It was a, a year after Gaddafi had taken over power in, in Libya in 69. So Hafez al-Assad, because he needed Gaddafi's money, uh, went to uh, greet him at the airport. So he tasked his uh, his friend, Mustafa Tlas, Manaf's uh, uh, father, to go to the main television building and to read out that first communique after the coup. So that tells you how close they are, and they're, they're very close. And uh, to the point where Manaf's own mother could could pick up the phone any time and speak to the leader himself, and and uh, she would bake him cakes, and uh, chocolate was his favorite, and uh, that's how close they were. Initially, it was Basil who was going to be the the um, the heir, and Basil dies in a car crash and uh, and enter uh, Bashar, and obviously, I show you how this family was doing everything to preserve its place in the court. I mean, you, you have to think of it as, as almost a medieval court, you know, where all these uh, players are trying to sort of uh, assert themselves and, 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 and guard their powers in this, in this cutthroat court. And so they're really driven by self-interest, I mean, from the, from the very beginning. And even through the decade of, of, of the first, you know, uh, decade of Bashar's rule, Yes, I mean, they're right by his side. They're marketing him to the Syrians as the reformer, uh, even till, you know, a, a year before the, the uprising. They're right there meeting with uh, uh, foreign officials, uh, telling them that Bashar is ready to reform, uh, but, but they have to sh um, ease sanctions. They have to show goodwill. Uh, I mean, this is what 
the message that Manaf was making to Western officials, that Bashar was ready to reform and also move away from Iran, but that the West had to uh, remove sanctions uh, on, on, on the regime. Um, so I think uh, Manaf, I mean, based on my understanding, really reached a, a, a kind, of, kind of a crossroads where he had to decide whether he wanted to be like his father, to acquiesce to, to the killing, to take part in the killing, or, or withdraw. And he cho chose to withdraw and then to leave the country. Um, so your question was, um, I'm sorry, I went out. <laughs> uh, in terms of, I did confront him, of course, of course. So, so uh, he basically said uh, the circumstances were different under the father, um, and that he, he even has great admiration for Hafez al-Assad, and I mentioned it in the book, and, and he said that was a different era, and we were in confrontation against Israel, I mean, using the, almost the same rhetoric uh, uh, of, of the regime. Uh, but then afterwards, um, he said, yes, I thought he was a, a reformer, uh, Bashar, and I thought I could convince him to uh, stop the killing, to uh, initiate real reform in the very beginning. I believed him. I thought we could you know, do something. But he said Bashar chose to go with the advice he was getting from his brother and his cousins. So I did confront him. And, uh, and everything you described about Manaf and how he was perceived by uh, uh, the opposition is, is absolutely true. OK. Dreyf, uh, please. Hello. Uh, my name is Raith Armanazi, a former diplomat, also uh, written a book on Syrian history. Uh, <coughs> Um, you never mentioned the, uh, the issue of uh, sectarianism at all in your presentation. Wasn't that a, a big factor in consolidating the regime itself and thinking that it's trapped in a situation, a, an existential situation that had to fight for its life because otherwise uh, uh, fear of, of the, the, the kind of backlash and so forth would, would, be, would be staggering. Is, is that some, uh, an issue that perhaps you uh, underestimated or you didn't or after you don't make much of it in your book or not? I haven't read your book, although I have got it at home. No, I, I do actually talk about it uh, at, at, at great length, and, but I, I'm, I did not mention it, I mean, in the presentation. You're right. Uh, yes, I mean, it's in the book, and there are chapters dedicated to it. What uh, both under the father, I mean, the father, when he faced... Uh, the big threat in the mid-70s and early 80s, uh, he then came to the conclusion that he had to rely on the Alawite minority as the backbone of his regime. And you will see in the book, that's when the doors were opened to the, to the Alawites to join uh, the, uh, uh, the military academy in Homs. And in the book, you would see, you'd see that how the military academy was churning out uh, almost these... Uh, uh, Alawite officers, and they immediately populated the top ranks of the army, and bit by bit, the Sunnis, uh, who are the majority in the country, were weakened, at least in the, in, the, in the top echelons of the army, the military establishment, and of course in the security establishment, which is overwhelmingly Alawite. And then the Sunnis were bit by bit relegated to uh, the ranks of, of, of junior officers and, and conscripts. 
so you, you see it under the father. I mean, the father began, um, I think the father began uh, his rule under the assumption that he could be the president for all Syrians and that Sunnis would love him and, and he would point out to, uh, I mean, if he, would, he had been accused of being sectarian, he could point out to all these Sunnis that were in his regime, like Mustafa Atlas and uh, Faru al-Shara and, uh, and others in the, you know, the top apparatchiks of the Ba'ath Party. And, and, uh, but then when he was faced with this big threat, he, he realized that he had to, at the end of the day, rely on his community. And the same thing happened with the son, by the way. So when he comes to power in, in, in the year, inherits power in the year 2000, there is a concerted effort uh, by the regime to, to project this image of a, of a, non, a thoroughly non-sectarian president, even down to the choice of his wife, to say that she comes from a, a Sunni family, from Homs, look, it doesn't matter. And then there were all these uh, stories, maybe some of it even, uh, you know, uh, put out there by people in the regime, you know, to say that, oh, the family is not happy, the mother is not happy, the sister is not happy, because they had wanted him to marry maybe a nice Alawite girl. And then, you know, who is this Sunni? That, that you know, She comes from London, she doesn't even speak uh, uh, Arabic properly. So there were all these, and, and, then, and then she sort of proves herself, and, and, and so... In the beginning, yes, even Manaf, I mean, even um, Bashar surrounded himself by by Sunnis and made uh, went out of his way to court the Sunni elites in the cities like uh, uh, Aleppo, particularly, where um, you know Aleppo saw a, a revival under his rule after it, it had been punished by the father Hafiz because it, it was among the cities that had uh, challenged his rule in the mid-70s and 80s. So Bashar went out of his way to court the elites of Aleppo and Damascus and elsewhere, and they became partners in, of the regime, uh, uh, at least when it came to uh, business and finance. But of, of course, junior partners, because uh, what he did was he created this conglomerate. Um, he was at the helm, and his cousin was uh, Rami Makhlouf was the head of this conglomerate, and the Sunnis were junior partners. But of course, when the uprising started, he realized very quickly that he had to do exactly what his father did, which is revert to his own community, to his own people, as being the only ones that would defend it. And, and there the regime uh, really played this card uh, from the very beginning, and which unfortunately polarized Syrians. Uh, the, the, you know, there were attempts in the, ver in the, the beginning uh, for protesters to transcend these sectarian divides. Uh, you could uh, hear it in the chants, you could hear it in even, uh, they're their arguing over what to call the Fridays, you know, because the, the protests were typically happening on Friday, the first day of the weekend. So there would be this, these heated debates among the activists like, no, we can't you know, invoke God, we can't invoke this. We have to be as inclusive as possible in, in our slogans. Goodness, okay. So lady here, please. Uh, thank you very much for today. Um, my question is gonna be very quick. Um, I wanted to know what you think about what was the involvement of the international coalition in the destruction of cities in Syria? Uh, are, you, are you talking about uh, like their, their involvement from the beginning in the destruction yes. of 
in the fight against ISIS or? <coughs> yes, in the fight, like in the, so in the destruction of um, DCP, um, what, what was the involvement of the international um, coalition from the beginning uh, against ISIS? Okay. Uh, well, from the, be I mean, in the beginning, it was mainly the regime uh, who had all the air assets and was bombing towns and cities uh, to, to basically uh, subdue them into, su into submission. Um, then the Russians were involved in 2015, uh, directly on the side of the regime. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the Western role, uh, yes, they uh, agreed uh, they gave the green light to regional powers like Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia to arm the rebels, yes, uh, but never, I mean, the rebels did not have uh, uh, airplanes. Um, they had other types of weapons, but uh, at some point they did arm them, I mean, later on in the conflict, they did arm them with, um, you know, anti-tank missiles, uh, but they never, for instance, armed them with... Uh, uh, the type of missiles that would down a plane because they felt that was uh, something very dangerous and, and these types of, you know, these uh, shoulder-held missiles could fall in the wrong hands and maybe a commercial plane could, could fall. So, but there were instances when Qatar, for instance, and I, I mentioned in the book, defied the U.S. prohibition and did secretly arm the rebels with sort of a, sh a small shipment of Chinese uh, 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 anti-aircraft missiles. But uh, uh, so, in terms of the big, you know, the pre-ISIS before, before, you know, the coalition uh, went in. I mean, the coalition began bombing uh, uh, the the towns and the cities that were uh, held by ISIS in the fall of 2014. So you could see uh, that, you know, a few years had passed uh, before their involvement. So a lot of these, uh, you know, cities were were destroyed uh, mainly, I would say, by the regime and the Russians. And yes, the cities that were occupied by ISIS, like Raqqa and and, and Deir Zor, yes, I mean that's where you would, you could say that the coalition played a part in destroying these cities. Good, uh, guy at the back, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, as well as Syria, you also referred to Iraq, uh, among other countries. Uh, many academics and uh, professionals and even some politicians have come to the conclusion that both Iraq and Syria, neighboring countries, are failed states. Not the only ones, about half a dozen of them in the region, MENA region, uh, uh, do you agree or disagree with that? How do you assess it? And uh, what it would be your recommendation on the basis of that if, it is, uh, if they are failed states? Doesn't that make the common border between them redundant? And isn't it time to review that part, which I call Mesopotamia, to be, uh, to be exact? Uh, and these artificial uh, borders, which are literally lines in the sand, especially this particular one, and that it needs for a drastic final resolution of the conflict in that part of the world. We need United Nations 
intervention for a transition period. Otherwise, we don't need patch-ups here and there, another Sykes-Pico, another, uh, and then there is proposal at the moment to, that uh, NATO should intervene in that part of, at least in Iraq. Well, that would, uh, that would make uh, uh, Russia and China uh, mad. So United Nations uh, intervention politically to rule uh, over Iraq for a limited transition period and militarily all the foreign forces in Iraq and in the Mesopotamia to be under the command of a United Nations appointed general. Okay. What is your opinion? Thank you. Thank you. That's a big one. I think I'm just going to focus on what you, what you asked me first about whether these two countries are failed states and whether there's any hope. Um, yes, I mean, they are. Not only failed, but destroyed states, destroyed in every way. Society, uh, the societies are destroyed. The economies are destroyed. Everything is destroyed. But, and here a big but, I'm very hopeful because I'm looking at what's happening in Baghdad, what's happening in Basra, what's happening in Nazaria, what's happening in, in other Iraqi cities, people rising up. I mean, these are mainly Shia youth. I mean, they belong to the, the majority in the country who are supposedly ruling Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, but yet they're coming out and saying to their rulers, you have failed on every count. You are corrupt. You are liars. Uh, it's time for you to go. We want a different system. We don't want a sectarian system. So I'm I'm very hopeful when I see that. I think I think instead of talking about intervention again, and I and I would be. I mean I'm. I've I've seen the consequences of intervention in Iraq, and Ian has has seen it in in Iraq and elsewhere as well. I would say my hope lies in the people themselves, whether in Iraq, you know, the, peop the youth coming out on the streets and saying, enough, you know, we want to take back our future. And also in Syria, it's not happening now, but we're seeing rumblings of it. I mean, just a couple of days ago, there were protests in Swaida in the south, in the south of Syria. Um, people are saying, uh, you know, are, are protesting against uh, corruption, against uh, uh, the, the miserable living conditions. Um, also in Syria, you have one-third of the population is outside the country, about, more, about 7 million, I mean, more than 7 million. And these people want, some of them at least, maybe uh, I would say uh, the majority of them would li actually like to go back one day. And now they're not just sitting there waiting. They're acquiring new skills. They're, they're, they're thinking about the world in a different way. These are the future leaders of Syria. So I'm hopeful when I see these people uh, better themselves on the outside, think about the future of Syria. And even the ones on the inside, while the fear of the regime, you know, the, the fear uh, that the regime had, has reinstated is, 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 is quite formidable. But when you talk to people, you see that while the revolution may have failed in toppling the regime, but it actually achieved one very important thing, it has changed the way Syrians think and view the world. And I think that's the real power is right there in terms of people uh, really taking matters into their own hands and, 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 and charting their own future. So I would be against intervention and more to helping and empowering the people 
uh, go forward. Yes, the lady there towards the back. Hi, this actually leads on, so good timing. Um, so you think it's inevitable that people will rise up again. Um, how long do you think that will take and what would need to be different there for a pro-democracy revolution to succeed, aside from people perhaps having changed their, their worldview a little? Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, it, it may take years for all we know, but, but I think the seeds are there. And I can tell you that the Syrians I speak to, the, the ones on the inside particularly, are, are watching very closely what's happening in Lebanon next door. As, as, as you know, the Lebanese are on the streets, even uh, the Lebanese in the south, which is an area controlled uh, by mainly by Hezbollah, people are defying the authority of Hezbollah and coming out on the streets. And, and Syrians are hopeful, and they're thinking, what if the Lebanese succeed? Maybe we could do the, th do the same thing again. Maybe we could have another try at it. I mean, they're, they're talking about it, but I don't know if it's going to amount to anything or when it might happen, but at least, you know, the seeds are there. I think mainly the, the number one lesson Syrians have, have learned is not to rely on anyone and not to accept anyone's, you know, intervention and advice. And, uh, and, and I think uh, there, there's almost a, 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 a universal consensus among Syrians that really what, what killed our revolution is the intervention of all these outside players who either claimed to be on the side of the rebels and wanted to help the rebels for their own agendas, and obviously the players that rushed in to defend the regime. So I think they really want to do it on their own, and, and, uh, and they have some great ideas on how to do it. Okay, the guy there, please. Well, it doesn't matter, really, but the guy who's waving his hand. Hi, thank you very much for this. My name is Wilson Fash. I also am a freelance journalist. I cover Syria and Iraq for French media outlets. My question is about the disinformation campaign uh, defending the regime uh, that is sometimes sponsored by uh, Russian states outlets or also sometimes here in the West by academics, journalists, politicians, and so on. Uh, and these have been very uh, persuasive, very powerful uh, counter-narratives. Um, have you yourself been targeted uh, because of your work to discredit your work? If so, uh, how? And yeah, that's my main question. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, before I answer that question, it's a, it's a great question. I'm just going to add a quick point to <laughs> your, your question. I mean, uh, one thing they're doing, uh, and, and we have to pay very close attention to that, is they're working on justice, the Syrians, they're working on justice and accountability. I would say they're leading the charge, at least in, I mean, in countries like Germany and France and elsewhere in Europe, to hold this regime accountable uh, for its crimes. And it's, it's slow and, and, and painstaking work with a lot of setbacks, but, but that tells you something. And you know, it's actually the Syrians themselves, the lawyers, the activists that are now living in Germany and France, that are actually taking the lead 
in, 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 these, uh, uh, in these trials and these proceedings that are taking place across Europe to hold the regime accountable. So that's very important to watch, I think. And, uh, you know, returning to the disinformation, yes, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. I was <laughs> inside Damascus, uh, and I'm there on the ground. So I go to the Yarmouk camp. You're probably familiar with it. It's, uh, it's a Palestinian. I mean, when you say camp, you think tents, but it's actually homes. I mean, initially it was tents when the Palestinians, you know, came to Syria. Uh, after the creation of the State of Israel. Initially it was tents, but then it became uh, a neighborhood, basically, the Yarmouk. And it was an area where people, again, rose up against the regime. And then it, certain armed groups with their own agendas almost, you know, took, took, took the camp hostage. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the people in, the, in this area had to basically pay the price because what the regime did was uh, it like like what it did with all the other areas it it, it laid siege to this uh, to, to this neighborhood to this area called the Yarmouk camp and prevented any food and medicine from going in i mean there were some horrific images coming out of 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 starving people uh reduced to eating grass and and whatever they could forage and in some in instances even even at, you know pets I mean, people sometimes were eating cats in some of these places. So uh, you can imagine how horrific the situation was. And then there's, uh, in, in early 2014, uh, there were talks in Geneva between the regime and, uh, uh, and the opposition uh, under the auspices of the UN and uh, the world powers. And as a sort of gesture of goodwill, they put pressure on the regime to lift, uh, to ease the siege on, on Yermouk, uh, among other areas. But I went to Yermouk, you know, I was out um, at the entrance of the camp, and I was watching how, you know, when the sick were being evacuated and the elderly, and, uh, and I, I tweeted a photo of this Palestinian woman who has uh, tattoos, uh, you know, here it's it's very common in the, in the Arab world. You know, particularly the uh, elderly women to have tattoos on their faces on other parts of their bodies. And this woman was like, I mean, she must have been almost ninety or something, or even, I mean, really, really old woman. And and she said to me, "Not even Israel did this to us." I mean, this was a quote from her. I used it as a quote. Uh, I mean, we could, I mean, we could debate this. Either way, but I was just quoting what the women said, and and then immediately one pro regime, uh, uh, I mean she calls herself a journalist, uh, started sort of making fun of this woman and saying, yeah, I mean why should we believe you? Yeah, I mean mocking her to two, say saying that that you know this was uh, this was the grass because she had been eating grass and and the green was the grass or something. So I mean so, so, some of these. Attempts, I mean, to discredit people. I mean, not only me, were, 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 were horrific. And and then, so you'd be in a situation where you're actually witnessing things yourself. You're quoting people, and immediately you're attacked by this army of of, of trolls, of, of of people, you know, who are defending the regime, uh, and 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 who discredit even your eyewitness account. Not just. 
loyal Syrians who are loyal to the Assad regime, of course, as well. Right, I of mean, course. It's a global phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Okay, the guy at the very back. How would you have liked to have seen the Obama administration react to the Syrian situation in 2011-2012? Uh, Thank you. Um, I think um, I can understand uh, Obama's decision and 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 and, and uh, urge to get out of you know to to. Um, to not have another Iraq. I mean, that's what he said. He said, I don't want to have another Iraq on my watch. And I can understand his reasoning and motivation for that. Uh, but what I can't understand is when the President of the United States comes out and tells the Syrian people that he will protect them and that Assad must go and sends them this strong message that he would actually do something to help them and then does nothing which then sends a message to the regime that it's okay to keep killing people uh, because Obama says he will help them, help the people, but then do nothing. I think that's the problem. And, and then we saw it, we saw it at, 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 at sort of key uh, moments of this, uh, this whole tragedy. In um, the summer of, uh, of 2011, when uh, protesters finally were able to occupy uh, uh, the main square in the city of Hama. Uh, I mean, at some point, hundreds of thousands were in the square uh, day and night. Uh, the two ambassadors of uh, the U.S. and France to Syria visit the protesters and, and, and tell the protesters that uh, they will do everything to uh, avert, you know, a, a bloody crackdown by the regime on, on, on their, uh, you know, on the square. And even President Obama comes out himself and 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 and, uh, and says he will uh, warns Assad against doing anything to the protesters, but then does nothing when Assad goes in and uh, cracks down on the protesters and kills a few hundred people and ends the protests. And the U.S. does nothing. And then we have the same thing. And th these are situations that have nothing to do with the chemical weapons, by the way. These are just situations when, when Obama is coming out with a very strong statement uh, against Assad, saying he must go, and a strong statement of support, and then doing nothing. And in 2012, uh, in February, uh, the regime had besieged uh, the neighborhood of Baba Amr in Homs, which had become sort of an emblem of the resistance against the regime. And again, uh, the president puts out a statement saying, I will not allow uh, the regime uh, uh, to kill its own people because uh, the regime uh, you know, was, was mounting this offensive on the 30th anniversary of the Hama massacre in 1982. Uh, and here again, um, you know, words ultimately mean nothing. Uh, the regime goes in, kills almost 1,000 people, including a U.S. Uh, journalist working for the Sunday Times, Marie Colvin, and um, the U.S. does nothing. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is that, is that a problem? If, if the president of the U.S. says he will do something to help someone and help people and then does nothing and almost giving a license to these uh, regimes, to these killers to continue the killing.
But if I can add, I mean, uh, you mentioned chemical weapons, but surely the important moment to the point of no return was in August 2013, when you had the chemical weapons attack in Ghouta, east of Damascus. Obama has declared it's a red line. Absolutely. And then does nothing to respond to that. That was the most damaging moment, wasn't it, in terms of American and international credibility? Absolutely. I, I totally agree with, with you. But I think we have to also understand that, that all these other moments were a build-up to that moment. Cumulative. Because, yeah. cumulative, because, I mean, because in the mind of, of – it's almost like uh, uh, making the regime test – what it can get get away with, like every time. Okay, he he did not intervene when we uh, massacred a thousand people in Baba Amr, including a U.S. journalist. He did not intervene when we did this and this. So maybe he's not going to intervene. Maybe this whole uh, red line of his is uh, is meaningless. Okay, goodness. Okay, the guy here, please, in the white shirt. Uh, you, you referred to the um, response from the U.S., and some people will think that this response encouraged the rebels to increase their uh, uh, fight against uh, uh, Assad. And uh, early on, you referred to the fact that some of the other countries had their own agenda to support the rebels. So can you please talk a little bit about uh, what are these agendas and why some people supported the rebels? And what would have been the situation if uh, Assad was removed from power? Do you think that uh, uh, the country now will be under Al-Qaeda? Thank you. Okay. Um, in terms of the, 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 the main players in Syria uh, on, the, on the rebel side, you have uh, Turkey and, and Qatar who... Um, saw the Arab Spring as, as an opportunity for them to um, install their own allies in power, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood, in places like Egypt and, and Tunisia and Libya. And to them, Syria was no ex exception. And it, it was a way for them to, uh, to gain power and influence. I mean, they saw this post pretend I mean, the, the, their vision was a post-Arab uh, Spring world where... Uh, perhaps the Arab world uh, would become an economic power uh, almost akin to the European Union. I mean, that was the vision of, the, uh, of uh, Turkey and Qatar, but obviously to have their Islamist allies in power in a lot of these places. So instead of uh, uh, resisting the Arab Spring, they wanted to do everything to support it, and obviously um, they saw um, how... In the case of Syria, the regime was was fighting and killing people day in and day out, and they came to the conclusion that um, the only way this regime would go it was through uh, armed resistance. And at, at, at the time, um, they were in the midst of, of, of toppling Gaddafi in, in, in Libya, and they felt that they could accomplish the same thing in uh, in, in, in Syria. Even at one point, uh, you know, the Emir of Qatar. Uh, told uh, one of his visitors that uh, you know I'm going to engineer a, a Libya-style intervention in in Syria to get rid of uh, Bashar, 
and uh, obviously for his own agenda. Uh, so that's Turkey and Qatar. On, uh, the other main player is Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia was never a fan of the Arab Spring. They saw it as a real uh, threat because what if these uprisings succeed? I mean, their own people are going to ask for the same thing. So uh, I think in, what, in some places they, they fought uh, what the Arab Spring produced. They resisted it, uh, like in Egypt and other places. But in Syria, they went in and said, maybe we could actually uh, try to uh, co-opt some of these opposition groups, arm them, uh, control them, and, and, and thereby control the outcome and not just leave it to Qatar and, uh, and, and Turkey. And at one point, these two camps were undermining each other. I mean, on the face of it, they were supposed to be on the same side, right? They're the, the, the allies of the U.S. And I think this was one of the main things that really, in my mind, um, poisoned this this whole effort, at least the armed uh, uh, you know uh, side of the of, of of the equation, and also the political side of the equation. I mean, every time uh, a new political body would be agreed on, uh, these two camps would fight each other over who would control this this political body. Uh, at one point, like Saudi Arabia would think, oh. This new political bo opposition body is too beholden to Qatar and Turkey. I'm going to do everything to bring these people to, the, to my side. So they would bribe them, coerce them. Uh, so every effort to try to organize the opposition, be it uh, armed, uh, the armed uh, wing of the opposition or the political opposition, was mired in this internal, in this competition between uh, Saudi Arabia on one hand, and when I say Saudi Arabia, I mean there are other countries also in that camp, like uh, at least when it came to Syria to a lesser extent, the UAE and maybe Jordan and other, other countries, and then Qatar and, 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 and Turkey. So um, finally, I mean just very quickly, you said uh, the country would be ruled by al-Qaeda if the regime was to be toppled. I would disagree with you on that. I mean, I, I think uh, it depends when, if I mean if the regime would have been, again, if, if the opposition was ever given a chance to get its act together and, and if there was uh, a chance for, for the Syrians to really uh, uh, forge something uh, credible without you know, this intervention, uh, deep intervention of these outside players, I think uh, something hopeful could have perhaps been constructed at least in the first year or two. But, but then after you know Nusra Front and Al Qaeda became a, a real factor, I would say no. I mean, the, the, there would would have been a risk for the country to to fragment and for parts, you know, big chunks of the country to fall in the hands of of uh, of, of ISIS and Nusra. Guy here, please. Thanks. Um, when, when I read your book, I think at the end of it, I came away feeling very grubby um, in the sense that we had been so useless in many ways in, in the world able to protect and defend um, people in, in Syria. I mean, listening to you again today, talking about the, the, the range of forces that are, um, uh, in a sense, out there with their own agendas, which they play out on the fields of, of Syria, 
I wonder indeed um, you know, where, how, where, where the, the basis of your future optimism um, <laughs> is a step, almost a step too far. I mean, what, what in that environment, is, is there any role for the democracies in any way to um, continue to help um, people in, in Syria uh, in the next stage forward? Because of course, you know, the ground now has been taken over very much by Russia and, and Turkey with even sort of Qatar and Saudi Arabia sort of somewhat marginalized. Thank you. Um, I think they can help a lot when it comes to justice and accountability. They can do a lot to support those seeking justice and accountability and to hold the regime accountable. Um, they can still do a lot in helping some of these forces, particularly the youth on the outside that are trying to organize themselves. Um, they can still help a lot by uh, leaning on, I mean, there are ways to engage Russia and lean on it to produce certain outcomes that could be favorable to moving things in the right direction. So I think it's not a lost cause. There's still a lot of things that could be done. Guy here, please, in the gray shirt. How, how significant was the role of Iran and the IRGC in helping Assad hold on to power? I think absolutely crucial. Uh, even um, the um, one of the top generals in the, um, I think he's the defense minister, General Ayyub, came out and uh, pay tribute to Soleimani and said, without Soleimani, we would not have gotten back Homs, which was, uh, you know, hugely important for the for both the regime and uh, and Hezbollah in Iran because it it's it sits right there close to the Lebanese border and it's the point connecting Damascus with the coastal region of of, of Syria, uh, and uh, but I I mean very quickly I would tell you that the that the partnership between the regime and and Iran goes back to almost the the creation of of, of the Islamic of Re Republic of Iran in um, in uh, seventy nine when Hafez al Assad the father was the only leader to side in the Arab world to side with Iran in its war against Iraq so the Iranians never forgot that and uh, while Hafez was the master of his house at so to speak, and he controlled, uh, um, you know, the the the, the para parameters of this relationship between, you know, between the regime and Iran. It wasn't the case under Bashar because he was very much more dependent on them, particularly uh, when he was forced out of Lebanon in 2005. He was weakened. Um, he was accused of uh, of. Uh, playing a role in the assassination of Hariri, uh, the Prime Minister of Lebanon in 2005. He was sanctioned. Um, and there, there Iran and, and, uh, and its uh, main proxy in Lebanon, Hezbollah, stepped in to support and prop up the regime. And the reward for that, I mean, this was back in, in 2005, was to almost open the doors to, to Iran and, and Hezbollah in Syria. I mean, they had unfettered access to all the military facilities, to the research center that was, you know, producing uh, these missiles and, and testing these, uh, you know, chemical weapons and things like that. Uh, and uh, so really they became 
uh, crucial to the regime starting in 2005. And obviously, when the uprising started, they were there uh, on the ground. Uh, and they were participating in every decision, major decision, early on from the first moment, uh, down to even how um, to, 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 to uh, even the media strategy, you know, how to present this to the outside world and, and, and what to say uh, the Iranians were involved. Uh, so you could see how important they were, I mean, from the very beginning. But obviously at some point, um, the, the, the threats and the challenges became so much so that they required the help of Russia. And guess who negotiated the terms of, of Russia's involvement in, uh, in Syria? It wasn't actually Bashar al-Assad or anyone from the Syrian regime. Bashar al-Assad announced it, but the person who actually went to Moscow and met with Putin and sort of negotiated the nuts and bolts of this intervention was Qasem Soleimani himself. Okay, so we're... Uh, we're getting uh, close to the end. I'm so to show some photos real quick. So do, so do. I mean, no, but at the end, I mean, in the last okay. five minutes. But, yeah. So guy in the white shirt there, please, and then the next guy sitting next to him. Keep, keep your questions short because we can, you know, we can cram a few more in. Yeah, I was just thinking of the brutality of the uh, regime's response to internal opposition. I mean, this is a historic point. I was thinking of uh, Abdel Hamid Saraj and how he dealt with internal opposition. Um, um, I guess my question is, um, does the state's response, the brutality of it, does it is it because it, of its inability to treat internal conflict in another way? I mean, is the, is the brutality the only option for the regime stemming from its inability to solve internal conflict in another way, through another more peaceful um, ways? Yeah, uh, excellent question. I would say the brutality, again, let's remember, at least when it comes to that part of the world, is not limited to the Syrian regime. Uh, uh, I mean, the the... the Biggest uh, example is Iraq, Saddam Hussein, uh, Egypt to some extent. Uh, I mean, all, all, almost every country in the Middle East. But uh, they have other tools in their in, 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 they have other other tools in their toolbox. It's not only torture and brutality. And uh, I think it's almost like a a last resort for this regime. Uh, they try other methods uh, in the beginning. Uh, uh, and then if if all fails, then they would resort to this brutality. And, and you see it throughout. And also, uh, all, uh, the problem with, with, with I mean, the, this brutality, in, 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 so, so they're doing everything in the beginning to not let, let it all sort of be just brutal. I mean, they're, they're trying other things to control the situation, uh, you know, threatening, intimidating people, arresting people, torturing certain people to, to, to send uh, you know, messages to the wider population. But then once they feel that that's it, you know, their existence is, is, is now in question, whether it, you know, they, they would continue to exist as a regime, then the brutality takes on almost a logic of its own. It, it, and that's what I 
saw in Syria, almost like uh, at that point, Bashar al-Assad said, that's it. You guys have a carte blanche. Do everything. Uh, but it gets, I mean, we get to that point only when the regime feels that's it. You know, it's, it's, it's going to fall and that it has to do everything to regain control. So then brutality almost takes on a, a logic or a dynamic of its own. I mean, early on, as I remember in 2011, and I think you addressed this in your, in your book, there was an expectation that maybe uh, you know, Bashar wanted to react differently, but he was outvoted, as it were, by the, you know, the, the older people, the security people, uh, and so on and so forth. You don't buy that, right? No, no. Obviously, he, he was very influenced by, by, by their uh, opinions and, and mm. views, particularly, for instance, someone like his, his mentor. I mean, this is like almost his, his godfather, uh, the, this guy, uh, Muhammad Nasif. Uh, this is an old-timer from um, uh, the days of his father, a very senior figure in the intelligence services. And he was the one who almost like trained Bashar, in the in the lead up to his uh, ascent to the throne, so to speak, in 2000, uh, Bashar would uh, go off with with Muhammad Nasif for weeks in the coast, where Muhammad Nasif would teach him about uh, you know the regime and 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 sort of the inner working workings of the regime. And uh, Bashar had a very difficult relationship with his own father, and uh, so he this person became a, a sort of the 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 uh, mentor. the mentor, and then when the uprising begins, Hamad um, Nasif says, "This is just like what your father faced in the mid '70s and '80s, and we have to do the same thing. It's either us or them." So obviously, the opinion of someone like that does matter. Okay, a couple more. I don't know what you want to do about the pictures, though. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I just if. It would just take five minutes. I mean, at the end, okay, so look, maybe so we take one. We, we have to be out of here not long after seven thirty. So let's take a couple more questions. Keep them short, okay? Guy here, please. Yep. Yep. Do you? Um, you said that the Syrians are closely watching the protests in Lebanon, and they might take another try in the future, but to what extent this is viable, taking into account the security apparatus from the military to the Mukhabarat, that they are very invested in the survival of the Assad family, and to what extent they are ready to relinquish this, their support to Assad? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's not only the, um, it's not only the, uh, the fear you know, that's been sort of reinstated and the power of the, of, of the Mukhabarat, the intelligence services, but also uh, you know what Syrians have to contend with on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, uh, a lot of Syrians, you know, can't even eat. So their number one preoccupation is putting food on the table. Their number one preoccupation is getting fuel to war warm their homes, to uh, you know, for their cars to perhaps go to work. So these are like the day-to-day -day, uh, concerns of Syrians. So of course, you know. <laughs> I think uh, coming out and revolting would, would not be a priority at all at this stage because, again, they're mired in these day-to-day -day, uh, concerns. And then, obviously, what you said, the, 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 the omnipresence of the, of the uh, police state again. But uh, they are looking at it. They're hoping that maybe... Th I mean, one person told me that some, we may reach a point where we have nothing to lose. If, if our economic situation becomes so bad, then 
we have nothing to lose, you know, uh, by by maybe going back on the street. But maybe this time it would be initially driven by um, these economic considerations. Okay, so let's take one more guy here, and then we'll zip through the pictures. Okay. Uh, thanks very much for your talk, and very much enjoyed reading your book. Uh, Assad owes a lot of, well, almost all of his um, thanks for staying in power to well, the Iranians and the Russians, as he said. But there, as the war's sort of, you know, into its last stages now, finding that they have a lot of a lot more different differences in the way they want a future Syria to look than previously thought. Do you, th which, um, do you have an idea of which way Assad might be pivoting if he has to choose one of the two partners? Excellent question. Um, I think so far he's survived by playing them off against each other uh, in a way, so he actually needs them both. But now uh, Russia is in the ascendancy, particularly you know, after the killing of Soleimani, particularly after the um, almost nonstop targeting by Israel of any uh, uh, you know, of the main Iranian and Hezbollah presence in, 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 the, in the military bases. I mean, dozens and dozens of, of, of airstrikes have been conducted. So with the almost the green light from, from Russia, but still Iran is there. Iran is very important. Uh, Bashar knows at the moment he's dependent just on one patron, Russia, that, you know, that would be the beginning of the end for him. So he does need them both. Uh, with that said, I mean, again, Russia is on the ascendancy. One thing, one sort of curious thing that I was like thinking about when Putin was, was you know, announcing all these uh, new moves in Russia itself, the possibility of, you know, the, him creating this uh, this new, uh, beefing up the powers of this council and, and him staying at the helm of this council in, you know, as the leader indefinitely and weakening the presidency and weakening the other sort of uh, positions in government. I'm thinking that perhaps this could be a model that Putin may want to force on Bashar, uh, we'll see. I mean, to tell him, look, you can step out of the presidency, you can become the head of a, a council just like mine, and, uh, and you can c continue to rule indefinitely. 